0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are in Parshat Bo this morning. We are in the uh, Parsha where um, we're coming to the culmination of the plague narrative. Uh, and so we are at the place where... Um, the courtiers of Paro, the officials, uh, heads of the court, have already turned on Paro and have said, "Do you not get it that Egypt is already destroyed? Um, send these people out, get rid of them, fight their trouble." And uh, so we're we're not exactly at the at the climax yet. Um, we're, so we're going to look at the part of the spring festival today that is about the paschal lamb so it's a bit complicated we think of it as pretty straightforward we think of it as the israelites took a sheep or a goat and they slaughter it at midnight after four days they slaughter it after four days so it's been in their possession for four days they slaughter it and then they are to. We're going to get the instructions about what they're supposed to do with it. And then um, the way we think about it is that this is the Paschal Lamb. What does that mean? Paschal, right? What does that even mean? The Paschal Lamb. It it comes from Pesach, because the text tells us, as we'll see, that God will Psach over the homes of anybody who's got the blood of that offering on their door, right, on the lintel of the door. So we're going to look very carefully at this uh, set of instructions and at what our commentators and what scholars have made of this, because I feel like when we get to Pesach, what we tend to focus on is matzah. That's what we tend to focus on. We tend to focus on the wheat harvest. We tend to focus on the fact that if you don't have any old wheat you don't have any starter. You don't have any sourdough, which means you're dealing with, by definition, unleavened bread. And that's where we spend a lot of our time. Even today, when we talk about the meaning of Pesach, we really focus on matzah and refraining from what makes us puffed up and what is leavened and what is extravagant and what is luxury whatever the meanings we talk about generally has to do with matzah. I want to focus instead on the Pesach, on the pascal lamb because it's a fascinating um, arrangement of temporal stuff aviva zorenberg talks a lot about that and i have her here if we have time we'll get to her um aviva Zornberg talks a lot about the fact that we never get narrated the events of that night we get told what's gonna happen and we get told that in the future, your children are going to ask you, why are we doing this? And you're going to tell them because of what the Almighty did for me in the land of Egypt. We never get the events of that night narrated. We get foreshadow about it or, you know, preeminent whatever about it. And then we get what it's going to mean in memory. We never get the events of that night. That is not like Torah. We are dealing with a ritual that probably is very, very, very old. We are dealing with Israelite pagan original ritual that is then historified to be about the night of the Exodus from Egypt. Um, there's lots of theories about what that is, but I want to what I want to remind us about is this 7-day festival is the Pesach, the celebration of the Pesach that gets put with the festival of Matzot. They are two different festivals in, as they originate. They are very different things. They get put together when they get historicized by early Israel, um, and when they get revalued from their pagan origins into is- the Israelite cult, it becomes about the Exodus from Egypt and it is put with Passover. Because Passover is in the spring. These are spring festivals. This is the spring lambing festival. And this is the spring celebration of the maturation of vegetation. So the maturation of sheep and lamb to where they can now reproduce. And uh, the maturation of grain so that it's ready to be harvested. These are the two spring festivals. You have agrarian folks in Israel. And you have semi-nomadic folks. These two festivals from those two different cultures come together in early Israel to be this week-long festival of Chag HaPesach, Chag HaMatzot. Okay? So we are not going to deal with Chag HaMatzot today. We are just going to deal with Chag HaPesach. Because okay? right. I decided... I was into it this year, because that's what we're doing this year. We're doing the year of what is Rabbi Amy interested in. (laughs) All right. It's kind of fun. I'm liking this year. Okay. I'm loving this like way to pick things. Um, Okay. So share my screen. We are going to be in Chapter 12 of the Book of Exodus. Again, it's not stuff we don't know. I want us to look at it carefully, and I want us to unpack it. And I want us to really think about, A, the origins, B, what it says uh, to us, which is what we do all the time. All right. Y'all at home, you can see the text? Yes? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you, Mehmet. Thank you, Lee. Um, Okay. So chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. God says to Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be for y'all. The first month of the months of the year. Dabru El Yisrael talked to the entire community of Israel saying, this is what you're going to say to them. On the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let it share one with the neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Notice, this is a tribal culture. Early Israel is a tribal culture, organized by clans. Notice that it does not say, if the household is too small for a lamb, let it share it with its clan. What does it say? Let it share it with whom? Hmm. Okay, neighbor. What that might be about. I have a question. So, if the household is too Least small. Lee Fulton's the only one who got it. Okay. okay. Yeah. If the household <laughs> is too small for a lamb, meaning there are two people, whatever, not enough to eat the whole. So, they're to share with their neighbor, correct?
2: Yeah. Right?
1: And why is that odd? Why doesn't it say share it with your clan?
2: Oh, okay.
1: It's a tribal culture, okay. organized okay. by clans. If your immediate nuclear family is too small, yeah, go to your kinsmen, go
2: right? To your go to your okay.
1: kinsfolk and go to your first cousins and your I get it. The second time, second cousins. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, na 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 na. So, uh, your lamb, tamim, right? It should be tamim. It should be without blemish. Zachar, It's going to be male, ben shana a year old male you may take it from the sheep or the goats you shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month and all the assembled congregation of the israelites shall slaughter it at twilight so we have <clears throat> you're taking this animal <clears throat> you're taking it into your possession and you need to hang on to it for 4 days okay we're going to talk a little bit about uh why come They shall take some of the blood, so everyone's going to slaughter it at the same time, at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they are to eat it.
2: Okay,
1: so, al shteha mezuzot, right? You're going to put it on each of the two mezuzot of your house. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with what? Matzot and Maror. Okay, this, how many of y'all ever went to a Seder and heard the three things, here are the three things that have to be done to fulfill the commandment of having a Seder. Pesach, Matzah, and Maror. This is why. It is this text. So, Pesach, Matzah, and Maror are the original, excuse <clears> me, <throat> are the original Pesach meal, where's the original Pesach meal eaten? <clears throat> in Egypt.
0: Why is not lamb the traditional Passover meal in modern day?
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of discussion about that. Part of it is probably about there shouldn't be any confusion that we do not have sacrifice anymore that this is not Dafka, the Paschal lamb, right? The, the sacrificial lamb that we then eat, that's part of it, that it became kind of a taboo. But it's not in all Jewish cultures that it's not a lamb.
3: So the product of a goat is the same as the product of a sheep?
1: Well, here it says either one can be used for that sacrifice.
3: Boy, are they different.
1: But for the semi-nomadic pastoralists, they had flocks of sheep and goats.
4: Well, what's with the mezuzah? I mean, that's a kind of uh, out of place, isn't it? I, or is it just an indication that this was written by people once the mezuzah? Because you can't have a mezuzah Mizuzah's without... Mezuzah
1: is late in terms of how we think of mezuzah is late. What it does tell us is that is already a fixture in the home. It is not referring to an object on the doorpost. You are painting the blood on the mezuzah of the door. So so mezuzah later comes to mean the object oh, okay. that you place
4: so the mezuzah on the Mezuzah. Is, is the frame really
1: correct. Okay. All right. Correct. We think the practice of mezuzah is fairly old. We don't know what it was before it became um Shma and those paragraphs right put on the door. We, you know, it was a most likely. It was a, a warding um, to keep demons from crossing the threshold, which we think actually a lot of this. Think about it. I want as we read, I want you to think about it. That's a lot of what we think this whole business is: is a right? You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna protect the liminal space of your home from what's happening that could get in. Okay. No, no. Apotropaic. Apotropaic. Yeah. So a just like it sounds. Um, it, is a, it is a ritual of protection, of warding.
3: Hmm? Warding of evil spirits, right?
1: Of anything, okay. but in general, those rituals were used not for the gunman who might come in and steal your chandelier. It was used for, right, that you would use a gun, right? You know, you, you need rituals... And magic, if you will, to deal mm-hmm. with that realm, so yeah, usually it's evil an evilly intended, malevolent spirits
2: somebody come
1: so yes, it is very much comparable to what it means for someone to want their home blessed right. now, when we right. think about smudging, we think about it is terrestrial human culture. So we've talked about some things that are common to all human civilizations ever known. One of them are ways to protect the home and rid the home of malevolent, you know, stuff. Okay, so when you came in today, you just kissed the mezuzah. Why do we have these magical things if we don't believe in this stuff anymore? Okay, so let's hold that thought about what is the function of mezuzah today. Let's hold that till we're uh, done with this. Okay. Um, All right, so they shall, so they have to eat it that night. They're going to eat it roasted, not boiled, roasted over the fire with matzah and maror. This is the original Pesach meal in Egypt. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted head, legs, and entrails over the fire. Remember, this is how sacrifices are offered later, right in the in the cult. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. Right? It becomes taboo. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it hurriedly. It is a what? You shall eat it. Uh, like, I want something better than... so. Um, yeah urgently uh aviva zornberg translates it as in panicked haste so chipazon implies pressure right this is not like just hurry this is like panic kind of hurry um that's how you are to eat it okay so you mm, we're we're not told yet so we are now being told this is a Pesach for Adonai. Okay? We'll take your word for that. Like it's a Pesach for Adonai. Why? Here we go. Here this Vav is gonna connect it for us. For on that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I, vav Vafei. So we're getting told what's going to happen. This is a Pesach because God says, I'm going to Psach, right, in the future. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for whom? You, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, right? Ufasachti alechem. Do you see? If you look at this word that I'm circling with my cursor on the screen, Ufasachti fei, samech, chet. That's Pesach. So this is why it is a Pesach to God, because God is going to Pesach over the homes that have the blood on it. I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Ha Yahomhazelachem Le Zikaron and this day will be for you one of memory The Chagotem Oto Chag and you will Hag right you will festify a festival Le to God Ledoro for your generations Chukat Olam, it is a chuk forever that you will testify. Then, right? Okay. Shivat Yamim Matzot Now, what do we get? Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall root. Okay. Right. We go from this huge drama to oh, by the way, we have this agricultural business. We need to slap onto this so that both. Both traditions are represented in the in the national narrative that you're now going to publish and ask all of this new nation called Israel to purchase. If you want them to buy the book, that's our national history now. You better have both the Pesach and the Chag HaMatzot in the book. So, oh right, we got to put Chag Hamatzot in there. Boom, there it is. Do you see how little drama there is around that? Like, okay. Um, okay. okay, quick question. Why does it say, and the blood on the houses uh, where you are staying shall be a sign for you? Why, Jody? do you think we're not going to get there? That's exactly where we're going. Okay. Um, so, so far, so we have a question about why does it say it's a sign for y'all? Who who should it be a sign for, Jody? I don't know. Why? Why should it be a sign for God? Because... So that he will know whose houses. Because otherwise, God doesn't know where the Israelites live. Oh. Oh. So it can be a sign for you because you got to be ready to go. Gather. Your they people. could be ready and not put the sign on. I don't know. Okay. I don't
0: know. <clears throat> <laughs> I was thinking that it would be a sign for you that God has your back.
1: It's a sign for you that God has your back. How? How is it a sign that God has your back? God hasn't done anything
0: yet. I'm giving you reassurance. By putting that blood on the door, I'm going to skip right over you. Okay, so
1: somehow it's a sign for the Israelites so that they don't panic. Correct. That I'm not coming for
0: you. They don't
4: have doubt.
1: But but don't they have to trust that to not panic? Yeah. So it's kind of a bit of a circular... Experience there, right? Like, that only comforts me if I trust you. It only comforts me if I believe that.
0: So wouldn't it be a buy-in?
1: So is it a buy-in? Say more.
0: That we believe you're going to save us. We'll do what you say. And by doing it, ma'asav
1: Okay, so friendly amendment from Mark is it doesn't mean I trust you're going to save me. It says, I opt in to the belief that this is going to work. That is, that is where a lot of our commentators want to go, is that this is a sign for the Israelites to opt in. All right. So let's look at what some of our folks do with that.
2: Isn't it also a statement that freedom begins inside you? And not outside. So,
1: meaning on the inside. Right, right. By
2: by you self-selecting, what Mark was saying, by you buying in, that's the beginning. And if you don't buy in, you can't depend on God to come.
1: So you have to do something, you Israelite, right? Right, let's look at Rabbi Lawrence, uh, no, let's start, yeah, let's start with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, page five of the handout that I just gave y'all.
0: May I comment? First, yeah, I, well, well, the opt-in is the same thing of the uh the crying that, that the disturbance, the crying that Israelites had when Moses first.
1: Beautiful, beautiful, George. George reminds us that God couldn't do anything about beginning the process of liberation until the people let out a big old sa'aka. Till they let out a cry, they had to do something. And we're going to see it again at the water when God says to Moshe, "Tell the people to move forward. Why are you crying out to me? They have to do something. The water can't split until they move forward." It, this is very much, I think, our theology. I think it's very much our mythology. I think it's very much about our relationship with the divine. Very good, George. That this is this is. And even if it's not necessarily there in the text explicitly, it is very clear that it happens over and over and over again that the way we interpret these texts from very early on is about you have to act. God can't do it. Is, is, this, for you.
0: is, is this also some of the interpreters and the writers have also said a number of Israelites chose not to go. So
1: that that up? is that is another commentary, yes. right? Um, and so, but to your point, um, Richard, it says, "Eben um, Ezra says, and the blood shall be to you for a token. This shall be for you a token, so that your hearts will be strong and will not weaken as you hear the cries of the Egyptians when their firstborns die. Via whom? Whom is sent to deal with the killing of the firstborn?" the mashchit the destroyer there are some people who want to trace this ritual to a very very old belief in in pagan israel so proto israel pre israel that there is a mashchit there's a destroyer and it comes for little children and that are bugging it by crying and if you think about lots of theology from the pagan world, the gods are upset by the kind of noises that humans make. It disturbs them. So um, that we have lullabies from Mesopotamia that talk about protecting children from the destroyer. Um I will pass over you, and there will be no plague among you, because I will see the blood. The blood will be assigned to the destroyer. So it's to that aspect of God that God has already unleashed. Once God unleashes it, God can't con- call back or control the mashchit. It's out there. It's, it's begun, and God can't stop it. It's an aspect of God that God has already put into play. So the blood becomes a way to stop the mashchit from, you know, blood is the life force. It stops the mashchit from coming in. Um, and one has to opt in because if one doesn't, the mashchit, there's nothing to, to keep the mashchit from coming over the threshold. Okay. But let's look, let's look at, um, Larry Kushner, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. This sentence here, the end of sentence two. Above all, what are they supposed to take? A lamb that is also an Egyptian god. In every household of slaves who have so nearly assimilated the culture of the oppressor that they cannot even believe Moses when he comes to them, <laughs> right? Moses tells them to slaughter the lamb god. Does God not know whose house belongs to whom? No. It is a sign for the one of, it, it is not a sign for the one of being, it is a sign for the slaves. It is a choice for them, an existential crisis, an unequivocal deed that may not be ignored, reconsidered, or postponed. The Egyptians know we own the God. They've seen it. That's why we have to hang on to it for four days. So everybody knows you're somebody who has one of the Egyptian gods in your garage. Come tomorrow And its blood is on our door. And we leave with Moses, or they will surely kill us. A slave who can kill the master's God is no longer a slave. And if we are afraid to kill the lamb, then we may not leave with Moses. We may pretend we are still one of the people Israel, but it will only be pretending. And this then is the first part of the transformation of consciousness. One must irrevocably choose To destroy the God of the oppressor, which you have taken into your home. It cannot be done in secret or postponed for even a day. You must stake your very life upon it. You must not go outside your door until morning. Now it is in the hands of the one of being. And then we're told God's going to go through Egypt, right, and execute judgment. This is the second stage. That the one of being would settle the score. I personally am not an angel. For once the alien god is destroyed, the forces of transformation are set into motion throughout the entire land, all during the night. You must remain in your hut while other powers do their work. Layers of consciousness, both within and beyond our psyche, are now also freed to continue the
4: work. Sorry. Is that is that why in the previous thing... Um the, when you uh, slaughter the lamb, you're all dressed up and ready to go. Is because you better be, because they're going to piss some people off. Is that what the thinking yeah. is? Yeah,
1: so your luggage better be packed, Yeah. because ain't no delay in taking this light, right? There's one plane out of here.
4: Is there any talk about, you know, there's this notion in war, which is kind of a, of collateral damage. I mean, you see it now in Ukraine, and I, you know, in a way, this, there's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, you could just kill um, Pharaoh and his son and say, okay, but in a way, the entire population, you, you're sort of, um, I understand why you do that because it's like, okay, get these people out of here. But there is there is this um, notion of, of like, oh, poor, it's like bombing those cities in Germany or whatever. So is there any, does anybody discuss so, that?
1: So one thing to remember is that these texts are written by people who live with war. Yeah. They're not writing about a fantasy world. They're writing about the way the world really works. And when you have war, when you've been given nine opportunities over 3 years to avert this war and you don't, your people are going to suffer for your decision as a leader. That's just how it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, right? So it's not happy, it's not
0: No, no, I You yeah. know, it's
1: not idyllic, it's not, right? It's it's the it's what it is. Um, it's,
0: it's also what the Pharaoh did, his order to kill. Uh, so it's also the
1: justified, right? That it's justice that you killed the, the male infants. Therefore, yours become forfeit if you choose to go to war. Again, we don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be a happy story. It's a story about reality um, and probably a fantasy. This didn't happen. So it's a fantasy by a tiny little people between the massive empires of Mesopotamia and Egypt. These are the empires that these are the masters of the universe. And this tiny little people writes a story about their God destroying, right? Pharaoh and all this collateral damage that happens to the army of Egypt. (laughs) It's a fantasy.
2: Um, it's also a literary device that kind of closes one era and opens up the next. The era that began, as George said, the era that began with Pharaoh saying, kill the firstborn of the Israelites, and now it's God will come and kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, and then they leave and we enter kind of like right, a new that, phase. Right, but that
1: that didn't have to be the story.
2: No, 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 I know. I say Our story it, is a right.
1: fantasy, I think, of our God beating up and destroying, it, which never would happen israel was was nothing Israel was gum on the bottom of the middle East shoe like it it was nothing so it 's a fantasy of of power by a people who has none. Israel was run over constantly by wars between. Mesopotamia, and Egypt, and anyone who wanted control of the trade routes had to take control of cities in Israel. So Israel was constantly being schmeiced. So this is a fantasy of a tiny people that never has control of its destiny, ever.
0: It was also necessary to show uh, God in the heart of the Pharaoh to show his power because who's going to believe this crazy man Moses, uh, he has no army behind him or anything. So this is to each each uh, plague was to show the power, and this was the ultimate power, uh, the army behind the potential Correct. dictator. Correct.
1: And so remember, you're talking about a people whose <laughs> fantasy, even in their fantasy, they don't have an army. To beat up Egypt, right? Like even in our biggest fantasy, you thought, well, once upon a time, we had the biggest chariots and we were the bosses and we, blah, blah, blah. no, even in our fantasy, what was our fantasy? God was the power behind Moshe, right? This, this is part of the revolution of early Israel. This is the revolution of a nation who says there is one being that created all of this and controls all of this, and it is that being that we align ourselves with, and it is the most powerful force in the universe. It beat up Ra and Isis, right? It, it beat up Egypt with all of their gods. All of their gods couldn't help. Not against Yothevafeh, right? So this this is the revolution of early Israel, um, of monotheism, like on the scene. And it's not about one. It's not about the number. It's about there is a unifying force. There's not lots of different gods that all come together to fight and sometimes fight each other, right? The, the, the revolution of monotheism is there is a unifying field, energy, whatever you want to call it, that, that we are aligned with. Of course, we're aligned with it and where it's chosen and all that good stuff. Of course, it's our story. Um, <laughs> right, it's our story, so of course. Um, and um, but that is a revolution in in the world that we often don't really give enough. It's a revolution in thinking, and it's a revolution in what unites a people. And this God stands for justice, and this God stands for equity, and this unifying field force that can beat up Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army, the strongest army in the world. That force says you shall love the stranger as yourself. That is radical. That is revolutionary. This force that can take on any worldly force says, treat the widow and the orphan, right? Respectfully. Take care of them. Or I'm coming for you. If I hear, say, the prophets, if I, God, hear their saaka. I'm coming for you. And the land will spit you out. It is conditional, your relationship to me. You're my chosen. You're my chosen to have a relationship that if you don't keep your end of the bargain, you're out. And I'll come for you. This is the birth of the idea of God who demands justice and protecting the vulnerable. That is not how it was in the ancient world. This is revolutionary. The force that can take on any worldly army can destroy Kings can lay waste to the richest, most powerful empires. This God is fighting for you as long as you fight for them. That is revolutionary in the ancient world. All right. We have Barbara and Dana Barbara. Yes.
3: I just have a question. If this is a Story that was written as a hope dream fantasy of this small little people. Wait, say a, a fantasy. Say you said, again. You said that if this story was written as a fantasy to yeah. you know from a downtrodden tiny little scrap of humanity. Right. Then how? If it and I'm not arguing that it isn't a story. I'm just trying to put it together. You in my can, mind. but good luck with how that. How is? How then did it serve? the people of the time to, to leave. And I guess what I'm trying to say is what's true. What's not true. How did, I mean, I know this can't be true, but but if it's a fantasy and it's the story contemporaneously told at the time that these people are slaves, how does it empower them and how does it move them forward if it didn't, if nothing happened? Okay,
1: first of all, by saying how does it move them forward, you're suggesting there were slaves in Egypt who went forth. Well, they I get it. <laughs> right, <so>, right. <laughs> right, so what is it? It's an origin tale. This is how our nation began. We didn't begin here in Israel. As a nation, our ancestors were here. As a nation, we were formed in oppression in slavery and we were redeemed from slavery by YHWH who took us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm right and the story doesn't stop there then we have Sinai right like the whole point of liberation is Sinai the whole point of us being redeemed from slavery is so y'all can be a model people that's our own story about ourselves about who we are and how we came to be. It's a little crazy. (laughs) Now, to the historicity question, most likely we know there was a group in Egypt of Semites. We know whenever there was famine in Canaan, they came down to Goshen and worked as migrant workers because there was no grain in a place called Israel, that depended on rain for irrigation. Egypt depended on the Nile for irrigation. So first of all, our God has to beat up the God that is the Nile. That's number one. So the, so the, hmm. what What was I saying? Okay, so they would come down from Canaan when there was famine, and they would be in Goshen. We know there was a group called Apiru, which it was a group of these Semites who were in Egypt who suffered oppression, possibly what happens is a group of them get out. A group of them follow a leader, possibly a monotheist, renegade prince, and they leave and they have an experience that is transformative for them in the desert. Right. This is where we get Midian. This is where we get Moshe encountering God in the desert. Possibly they are exposed to a desert people. They have an experience in the desert. Something happens. When this group pushes into ancient Israel, they begin to take power in in different places. Their, Their understanding of their history has them challenge the Canaanite system It's like a feudal system of lords who own the land and serfs who work the land. When they start to take power and start to convert people to their way of understanding things and how things should be, the Canaanite population resonates with this story of liberation from oppression. The Israelites were pushing in change things so that the Canaanites say we resonate with their story and it becomes adopted by the Canaanites who become early Israel. We know there was no conquering of Canaan. Israelite material culture develops in Canaan. What does that mean? That means they were Canaanites. The mass majority of Israelites, of early Israelites, were converted Canaanites. So whoever this group is has this experience. So it's not that there's zero historicity, but it is certainly not the entire slave class of Egypt and Pharaoh's army, right? Like maybe there was a skirmish and they won and they were outnumbered and miraculously they won. That becomes this huge fantasy of this relationship to Yoteba who takes them out. And they may have understood this small group that that's the power and the force that took them out. So that's in a nutshell, and I need to do it. And thank you for the reminder. I need to do it every few years because people are like, "Well, it never happened, right? We do pass on right?" So we, you know, we have to have this conversation every couple of years. Maura Tenzer, don't even get her started with me about this. Maura Tenzer has never forgiven me. Never forgiven me for saying it didn't happen. Okay. Um, All No, hang on, because I had Barbara and somebody else, and where'd they go? So Carol. Um, the hardest thing for me to deal with is the children, the babies, the firstborn thing. Yeah. Why couldn't he kill the father? Why not? Why? why? Well, Pharaoh demanded Hebrew infants be murdered. What is justice? An eye for an eye. Yeah. Really? Yes, really.
4: That seems.
1: Yeah, because we live in the modern world where we don't have to deal with it. We're dealing with the people who saw this all the time. They saw invading armies murder babies all the time. Uh, Their story, though, says God gave Pharaoh nine tries. Okay. And then after nine plagues, almost three years, Pharaoh won't relent. And so the coup de grace. Yeah. Again, we don't have to like this. I'm not suggesting the Israelites liked it. I think they're talking about reality. They're talking about war. They've seen it, and they don't want it, right? Their understanding is they're in relationship with a God who will make sure they are not victims of war, as long as otherwise. We get told in graphic detail in Deuteronomy what's going to happen if we don't keep these laws, right? We get told very clearly how brutal it's going to be the war, the invaders, who will be successful. Because this is the world they lived in.
2: All right, I, I do, Dave? I, I wanted to add a postscript to the it didn't happen. It, it, it may not have happened, but it has existed and been developed as the story of our people. And that, we know, has happened. Correct. So Mark, it's not uh, when we say fantasy, it sounds like, oh, it's just made up and it has no relevance. But it does.
1: Well, okay, I don't want to get too, right, okay. I don't want to oversell, but I. is myth true? I'm going to suggest absolutely myth is true. It, it's the way we talk about the deepest truths we know is myth. And that is what we're dealing with here. It's our people's mythology. And for me, there isn't anything more true. History, go figure out which version of history is true. Right. We are seeing this in our own country right now, a reckoning with how our history has been told. Right. The victors tell the story. Right. I, I think myth is way more accurate, if you want to call it that. Right. Then. OK. Why do people keep disappearing? Dave Russo, where are you? Um,
0: huh? we, I'm here and I bet I just sent a uh, uh, chat, which really I'll said, say it uh, out what loud. What I can't say? read the chat. Yeah, why okay, don't you me. take a, what I said was, um, <laughs> does this make sense if we understand that the quote story was written hundreds of years later by people who felt the need to develop a structure of belief in that you need a God to conquer the Egyptians as the slaves were powerless?
1: Yes. Right. I think that's, that's a shorter way of saying what I said in a very long way, which is, Very much later when they're creating their own, when they're telling their children about how they became a people, this becomes their collective association with the force that created them. That force liberated them from oppression in a foreign country, the one right down there south of us, right, and that we shouldn't go to a lot because terrible things happen down there. Um That country down there, the really big one that thinks it's so amazing, right? We, our God, beat up that God and their army and everything else and took us out and gave us Torah in order to create this country based in Torah. And if we screw that up, we are forfeiting safety and we're forfeiting this land. That was their understanding. Amy, wasn't
0: this- wasn't this more also of a need for the powerless to find some force to give meaning to their life because, and we see this in re- the belief in religion all today. Are know? we
1: different? Am I any different? No. Rabbi yeah, Amy, because I keep disappearing, I just wanted to note, this is Dana, Um, that, you know, every Friday night at Shabbat, we um uh you know say a prayer for the angel of death so the angel of death doesn't come to our shabbat table right or something it what? made me think well it made me think of our tradition that we you know we do this thing on the doorpost for our freedom let god know right now, in today's world, we're still doing something on Friday night. Isn't there one of the blessings no, that we do? No, we do not talk about the angel of death on Friday night. No, we do not. What, what's it, what is it that but we're... Dana, I think it's a great idea, because these days, I'm not sure we don't need a prayer uh, to keep, like, malevolent forces... Outside and not inside, but um but no, on Friday night, we do not have that. There's no understanding that the angel of death is coming for us. What we do have is Kiddush that tells us, we do okay. this in commemoration right of the going out from egypt that we do, but if you come up with what the angel of death stuff no, is no, i'm no 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 well I, um okay. I'll try. I thought there was a little tradition that one of the, you hope that, you know, bad luck doesn't come to you or something on Friday night. There, there is a tradition that you come home from shul, the men, and there's a good angel and a bad angel sitting on your shoulder and they're each, they're each writing and as you come into the house, each one gets to say, so may it be next week. Okay. If your house is ready for Shabbos and everything is beautiful, the good angel gets to say, so may it be next week, and it's true. And then if it's not and everybody's fighting and the kids are filthy and whatever, then the other angel gets to say, so may it be next week. I mean, that's as close as I can get to, you know, to a malevolent. Living. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Sorry. Okay.
0: Well, good. I'm glad we got okay. to the bottom of that. Just one fast comment on history. I was in Cairo in 1975 and went to the uh, light and sound show on the pyramids and the Sphinx. And they said um, the loyal servants, when the Nile was flooded, they came up to the higher ground and built the pyramids. So with my heart, I mentioned that there's some stories about the slaves built the pyramids. Their answer was Egypt never had slaves. So, which is clearly, everyone had slaves at some point. So it depends to whom you talk no. to get the history.
1: Well, ask ask our ancestors about slavery in this country. Right. It was it was divinely sanctioned. Yeah. No problem. Like just look at the Bible. It's right there. Like you know, white people are you know superior and meant to own black people. Like duh.
0: Mark. Um, you know, this is, this, this may not be something that's relevant, but I was wondering if you have any ideas about how all of this relates to the Mesolithic resolu- revolution and the uh, change um, in, uh, uh from, um, uh, an animistic religion to a uh, more monolithic yeah. or theocratic religion. There's
1: a wonderful book by Karen Armstrong, um, that talks about this called The Axial Age. Um, where she says that um, universally there is this move, that it is a, that it is a part of the evolution mm. of the human species, and mm. that, yes, it's happening in early Israel, it's happening in Egypt with Ankenaten, it's happening in China, it's happening in India, like it's happening all over the world during the Axial Age, that there is this collective move, and that, that that it's all part of the same thing. And she then wrote a book about the next axial age is upon us. That the next shift in human consciousness that will determine the fate of the planet is upon us. And like she's asking us to be cognizant of the direction we're evolving because that will define the future of life on this planet.
3: The, both, the both literally,
1: again? like whether or not there will be life on this planet, but also what is the quality of life for human beings and other creatures on this planet. It will be up to how we evolve in the next axial age, which is a coming. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: all right, I want to go back to um, uh, one of our commentators um, because I think because um, it's just such good stuff. Um, This is my classmate, Toba Spitzer, from the amazing class of 1997. We are famous in the Reconstructionist movement. They hate seeing a bunch of our names on anything to which we will be attending, because they know it'll get a little rowdy. They were very worried. When we were getting our didn't die degrees, they were very worried that there was going to be a bunch of us in the house for graduation. They were like, "Uh uh-oh, 97's coming. Okay, here we go. Up to this point in the Exodus story, the Israelites have been essentially passive characters in the unfolding drama of their redemption. Marking their doors with lamb's blood is the first thing that the people of Israel are asked to do for themselves. This act thus becomes their first step towards freedom. Someone here said that, so I wanted to lift this up. Rashi notes in verse 13. That verse 13 says, the blood will be a sign for you. That is a sign for the Israelites, not for God. But why did the Israelites need this sign? In order to take a step toward towards becoming a free people, the Israelites had to mark themselves. An essential first step on any journey towards liberation is a willingness to identify oneself, to step up, to speak out, to mark oneself simultaneously as oppressed and as ready to break the bonds of oppression. By painting their doorways, the Israelites were both claiming their identity and at the same time making public their rebellion. They willingly risked the possibility that nothing would happen that fateful night, that their Egyptian oppressors might not be killed, and would rise the next morning to see the signs of a slave revolt with the doors of each participant blatantly marked. They marked themselves as slaves, and they marked themselves as free. Mm. This is the challenge that our ancestors leave for us. We may no longer be slaves, but the world is far from redeemed. And these questions still echo for us. What are the steps that we need to take on our own journey of liberation? How do we mark ourselves as both oppressed and free? What is the risk? that we each are willing to take to signal the beginning of new possibilities. As the Israelite slaves were willing to mark themselves and take that first step, so too may each of us be willing to stand out, speak up and make our mark on the road towards freedom. Page seven, uh, Daniel Fink is talking about the fact that we get the plague of darkness, right? Um, and then death. This is Parshat Bo, it's all about, right? Darkness and death. The darkness of bow is inseparable inseparable from devastation and death. It is therefore a source of intense trepidation, not only for the Egyptians, but also for our Israelite ancestors and for us. When on the journey of our lives, we find ourselves cast into dim places. We tend to reach desperately for light. The descent of darkness shatters our illusions of control and reminds us of our own mortality. Yet, Harshat Bo reminds us that darkness is also the incubator of hope. I needed this one this year. Um, The place where redemption is born. In Egypt, the Jewish people become a nation. We are conceived in the darkness of bondage and delivered in the middle of God's eternal night of vigil. In her book, When the Heart Waits, Sue Monk Kidd urges us to think of the divine dark that descends upon us all as a womb, Rather than a tomb. She asks, could it be that seeking real light comes only by dwelling for a time in the dark? Everything incubates in darkness. Whenever new life grows, darkness is crucial to the process. So why have we made God into a rescuer rather than a midwife? Parshat Bo challenges us to imagine God as a midwife, to embrace our night vision, The poet Theodore Rutke writes, In a dark time, the eye begins to see. In their Egyptian midnight, our terrified ancestors caught their first glimpse of freedom. In our own midnights, we too begin to see, but only if we find the faith to hold our ground despite our fear, to wait patiently in the shadows rather than running prematurely for the lights.